preliminary perspective, medicine and madness at the court of Saladin. What follows is my paper, which sets the background of the workshop and explains how the four historical key lectures relate to my research. Just before Daniel gets underway, I should say that he is also a member of St. Cross College. You have three good reasons for being here today. Um, Daniel is one of our uh, star students, I would say, at St. Cross, uh, working, uh, he's a DPhil, on a DPhil, on uh, physicians at the court of Saladin, hence the sort of focus upon this particular time period. Come on, Daniel. Another, another Arabist, I think, I think there is a chair, right? Um, Daniel is a, a Berliner, although you will not know that from his accent. Um, educated in Germany, but also a master's degree from the University of Edinburgh. Uh, another one from Oxford in Hebrew studies. And now working on his detail. Uh, I think that's probably enough. Work. So you'll set the background uh, for this particular time period. But mind you, many, uh, as in the case of Peregrine, many of the comments have been made uh, regarding the medieval period in general, or at least other, other aspects of the medieval period, and simply to solve this question. Thank you very much, Emily. And thank you, Bill, as well. And they have done a lot of work, so it's not as... <laughs> the great error of our day in the treatment of human beings is that some physicians separate the treatment of the soul from the treatment of the body. Sorrow Plato um, will follow us throughout this workshop. Bill has already mentioned him. Now, medieval physicians, among them Saladin's court physicians, took this criticism seriously. They did not simply repeat what the Greek physician Galen had taught, namely that the soul follows the temperament of the body. Instead, they asserted that the opposite must also be true. The soul has an effect on the temperament of the body. In this context, Said ibn Bakhtishu, an 11th century physician from Baghdad, called attention to the neglect of the soul by the ordinary doctor, and I quote, who has not entered the Bimaristan, the hospital, and has not seen how the staff treat the sick, pacifying the nerves of some and busying the minds of others, directing their anxieties and entertaining them with song and other things. Now, later in the afternoon, Peregrine Horden um, will tell us more about hospitals and the bad. Um, and we'll meet again Said Ibn Bakhtishu in uh, Hinrich Biesterfeld's paper, um, as I believe. And Hinrich will also tell us more about the conflict between physicians, theologians, um, and philosophers <coughs> who argued about who should be responsible for taking care of the soul and who should be responsible for taking care of the body. Now, Saladin employed Jewish, Christian, and Muslim physicians at his court in medieval Cairo. And in a few minutes, Carol Hillenbrandt, uh, who sits almost next to me, um, will tell us more about this court and provide us uh, with the historical and po political background of what I think is a very um, fascinating period in history. At Saladin's court, the most prominent physician was the Jew Ibn Jumai, Saladin's private physician. He died in 1198. Um, that is a couple of years later than Saladin. Ibn Jumai wrote a medical textbook entitled Guidance for the Welfare of Souls and Bodies, which he probably used when lecturing to his students at the court of Saladin. So what would his lecture on madness would have been like? And before answering this, we need to be aware that we do not really know what Ibn Jumai would have called madness. 
In Arabic, junoon is the most likely equivalent, but it has the connotation of being possessed by the jinn, those usually benign spirits. So, what if Ibn Jumai thought about the jinn when thinking about junoon? His lecture outline on madness is relatively short, but gives some answers. First of all, it is not only on madness, but also on melancholy and mania, which, which seems to have been closely related for him and other physicians as well. He attempts to define madness and melancholy by explaining how they differ, and I quote, Melancholy, melancholia, madness, junoon, and mania, mania. The difference between melancholy and madness is that melancholy is not associated with jumping about and mental confusion, but rather with an excess of evil thoughts, loneliness, bad thinking, and fear. Madness, however, causes jumping about, angriness, uncontrolled movements, permanent confusion, and insomnia. The causes of all these brain diseases is an excess of black bile. Although melancholy is due to natural black bile, or black bile concocted from blood or phlegm, while madness is due to black bile concocted from yellow bile. So, following this definition, madness, or junoon, had nothing to do with a jinn, but was rather a material imbalance in the brain. We can imagine that Ibn Jumai would have agreed with Ibn Sina, better known as Avicenna in the West, um, an 11th century philosopher, who wrote in his famous medical encyclopedia, The Canon of Medicine, some physicians think that melancholy is caused by the jinn. But as we study medicine, we are not concerned if melancholy is caused by the jinn or not. In fact, this is a rather remote question. If melancholy was caused by the jinn, it comes about through changing the temperament, misage, to black bile, for melancholy is due to an excess of black bile. The cause of this black bile might be the jinn, or it might be something else. For instance, among the strongest causes of melancholy are an excess of grief, ifrat al-ram, or fear, khauf. Now, however, we cannot be sure if Ibn Jumai dismissed the jinn as a causative agent. So I think we should not assume a priori that a court physician would never consider, uh, would never consider what, what we term supernational um, explanations or treatments, even though he is trained in more rational sciences. In a passage which preceded Ibn Jumai's discussion of madness, the court physician tells us about possible ways to treat migraine, which, as a disease affecting the head and brain, is put on the same level as madness or melancholy. One of the treatments suggested for migraine is, that, is the production of a rather magical migraine comb made from the horns of a ram, which need to be cut off while the ram is still alive. The suggested treatments for madness, melancholy, and mania are, however, less dramatic. Even Ibn Jumai suggests two different modes of treatments, here focusing on the welfare of both souls and bodies. And I quote him again. On the general principles of treating these diseases, it is necessary to begin with a general procedure of applying medication that purges the black bile, such as dodder, aloe, violets, and then he goes on and gives you many, many others. It is not necessary for sufferers of melancholy to withdraw themselves, but they should rather join the company of those they like and respect. They should busy themselves with thinking about new and good things and listening to a singer. Now, unfortunately, this only tells us about general suggestions, and we can only speculate what Ibn Jumai actually did with people suffering from melancholy, madness, or mania. 
We have to turn to his contemporary Maimonides um, to learn more about how a court physician would give a tailored advice to somebody suffering from one of these afflictions. <coughs> Maimonides' fame as a theologian and philosopher makes him today the most important, most well-known medieval Jewish physician. He was the personal physician of Al-Afdal, Saladin's eldest son. Al-Afdal was not very successful as a politician and lost successive, successively Damascus, Egypt, and all the Syrian thieves. Now, instead of politics, he seems to have preferred self-indulgencies and the ephemeral pleasures of life. Feeling rather unhappy and not really healthy, Al-Aftal sent a messenger to the poor physician Maimonides to seek his medical advice. Now, contrary to what you might expect, Maimonides um, did not then visit his patron in person, but rather composed a letter in which he addressed the ailments of Al-Aftal, and that's how we know of it. Maimonides tells us that his patron sometimes suffered from unhappiness, Kaaba, bad thoughts, fikra radia, indifference, istihash, and the, expected, and the expectation of imminent death, tawakul maut. But the first and probably most important complaint listed was that Al-Aftal's stools, are most of the time so dry and hard that it is only possible to excrete them with great effort. In other words, <laughs> constipation. Now, did Al-Aftal suffer from what we today call depression? Occasional unhappiness, bad thoughts, indifference, and the expectation of imminent death might or might not convince a psychiatrist to diagnose depression. It's always difficult um, to come to a decisive conclusion, conclusion as the diagnosis will always involve rather subject, uh, subjective <laughs> categories. However, if all we have is an 800-year-old recipe, or a letter, to, to an overman, with a description of a few symptoms, as in this case, a diagnosis becomes all the more problematic. Now, in medieval times, depression was not a diagnostic category. But what about melancholy, a very prominent medical term and the subject of several medieval treatises? Can we say that Al-Aftal suffered from melancholy? Now, later in the noon, uh, afternoon, Pauline Kutche will tell us more about her <laughs> current uh, research on melancholy, so here I will only give a, give a very brief definition of melancholy. Melancholy literally means black bile, uh, melas for black and pole for bile, because the cause for melancholy was thought to be an excess of black bile. Maimonides, however, did not use the Arabic word for melancholy, malancholia, in his letter to Al-Aftal, he does so in a, letter, in, in a later letter, but I think um, not as a diagnostic category. Now, he, in, in this letter, however, he did not even stress the importance of black bile when explaining where Aftal's psychological symptoms came from. He explained that when stools become dry, let alone if they are retained, very bad vapors develop, ascend to the heart and the brain, corrupt the humors, <coughs> make the humors turbid, Produce unhappiness, kaaba, bad thoughts, fikra radia, stupidity, balada, and laziness, kasal an al harakat. Now, even though Maimonides might have implied an excess of black bile when talking about the corruption of humors in the brain, he does not make it explicit. His only reference to black bile is found in his prescription of two syrups and in a lecturery. And there he writes Their effects are that they clarify the blood, remove its turbidity, and cleanse it of its melancholic vapors, literally black bilious vapors, alabkhara asaudawiya, so that the soul is delighted and rejoices, the chest widens, and such sadness, kaaba, in expectation of imminent death, tawakwaad, disappear. Now, the overall focus um, of Maimonides' letter is, however, <coughs> on softening the stools. 
proper and rather elaborate diet and various compound drugs. The problem of black bile is only mentioned in passing. So the question for the historian becomes, did Maimonides think that he was treating melancholy? Was melancholy an important or meaningful term for him? Now, I think unhappiness, or kaba, seems to have been much more to the point. After lunch, Geert uh, van Gelder will tell us a little bit more about problems associated with terminology. And as we'll see, terminology is a, problem, a problematic issue when looking at the range of terms relating to madness. And as I believe, or as Bill has already uh, pointed out, I think the same remains true today. After advising Al-Aftal about what to eat and how to prepare a range of complex compound remedies, Maimonides then turns to the treatment of the soul. Here again, we're reminded of Plato, and Maimonides tells us that the physicians advise to always look after the movements of the soul, al-harakat al-nafsaniyya, and one should not let any other regimen take precedence over this in any way. In other words, the soul has become more important for Maimonides than the body. Especially when it comes to diseases afflicting the soul, marat nafsani, such as hypochondria, malakia, whisperings caused by black bile, al-waswas al-sawdawiyya, worry, ham, ruminating thoughts, or long thoughts, al-fikra al-tawila, feeling indifferent, istihaj about something that one would normally not feel indifferent about, or lack of joy, kila al-indisat, something one would normally enjoy. Now it is possible that Maimonides diagnosed all of these in his patient after, which would help from a modern perspective in deciding whether he was, he was depressed or not. Now symptoms aside, it is very remarkable how Maimonides tries in his letter to take care of Al-Aftal's soul. What is essentially a philosophical sermon, Maimonides admonishes Al-Aftal to read good books on philosophy, as well as religious law. And here, the Jewish physician seems to think in particular about the biblical prophets and their advice on ethical matters. He stresses that such bibliotherapy must be effective as women, children, and the ignorant have no knowledge of such books and are therefore particularly prone to anxieties and worries because they are not able to discipline their souls. Something you might not agree with, but um, Maimonides' advice is to become a philosopher who, and I quote, if afflicted by the severe mundane maladies, is not anxious or fearful, but bears it well. The philosopher knows what appears to be bad can actually be very good. Even for someone who has lost all his fortune, and I think here he, he, he um, addresses Al Aftar, this could mean that he is finally able to adorn his soul with moral virtues, devote himself to religious worship and thus come closer to his creator. Maimonides ends with how futile it is to even have bad thoughts about either past or future events. In sum, Al-Aftal is not only informed about the best medication to soften his stools, but also about the best possible treatment for his soul. Melancholy or black bile is of little importance, even though Maimonides does provide us with the explanation of how the soul affects the body. We are informed that the reactions of the soul, al-infi'alal al-nafsaniyya, such as being said, hazana, cause a withdrawal of the innate heat and the blood into the interior of the body. Black bile, however, is not mentioned in this context, and it therefore hardly su surprises that Maimonides did not use the term melancholy at all in this letter. Humoral explanations do not seem to be all important when it comes to the diagnosis of depression or the treatment of the soul, which is, according to Maimonides, even more important than the treatment of the body. 
Humours, among them black bile, only play a subordinate role in Maimonides' perspectives, uh, prescription and perspectives. Now my final question is, and then I um, stop, is any of this useful for our modern understanding of madness in general, or depression in particular? Considering that medieval medicine is often depicted as bad medicine, we might assume that we, today, are in a much better situation to understand these issues and do not need to engage in cumbersome speculations about the past. However, is it really true that we are so much more advanced when it comes to treating madness or mood disorders? Generally speaking, it seems that the focus today is on treating material imbalances in the brain or on genes. For instance, if we were able to find the gene for depression and had a way to either get rid of it or modify it, probably only few of us would hesitate to do so. I hope not pill, but yeah. Um, or if we had a pill that could completely eliminate depression without side effects, only few would hesitate to take it. In fact, one in ten Americans are on antidepressants, and a huge number of patients and doctors believe that we are not too far away from just such a miraculous pill. This is not to deny that there is a range of psychological treatments not involving any pills. However, drugs seem to be much more important for a number of reasons. So when I recently read Irving Kirsch's new book, The Emperor's New Drugs, in which he further develops his argument presented in his 2008 public, of li public Library of Science paper, namely that most, if not all, antidepressants are no better than placebos, I was reminded that Plato's criticism about not treating souls properly is perhaps still true today. I also started to wonder if we really have made a huge improvement in treating depression. Are modern and medieval treatments so different after all? If Kirsch had been active in the Middle Ages, he would have probably found that the medieval pills against depression were generally no better than placebos either. As medieval physicians did not employ randomized controlled trials, they were not able to tell if the effect of a certain drug was due to the regression toward the mean, its specific chemical effects, the placebo effect, or the context in which healing took place. However, physicians were nonetheless aware that the sum of these effects, most of them initiated by taking medication, made an important difference in their practice. Furthermore, they were most likely to attribute such positive effects to the drug itself, even if the drug was, from our perspective, chemically inert or not doing what it was supposed to be doing. So our 12th century court physician would use pills and potions for depression, and, perhaps very much like modern antidepressants, these medications would work not due to their effect on the brain, but rather due to the effect on the patient's mind. But there are some important differences between perspectives, between perspectives of our court physicians and modern biomedical perspectives. Our 12th century physicians um, seem to focus less on material imbalances in the brain and were willing to give more importance to the treatment of the soul. As we have seen, religious or philosophical books were crucial in Maimonides' suggested treatments and Ibn Jumai stressed the importance of good friends and music. In this instance, we don't hear much about the jinn, but other medieval physicians show that their belief in jinn provided a range of other complementary treatments and approaches. So to conclude, um, I believe that pre-modern medicine can help us to deepen or re-evaluate our modern perspectives about madness in general and depression in particular. Comparisons raise many interesting questions, and perspectives that are more than a thousand years old might prove, prove helpful if we contrast them with our modern values, approaches, and treatments. Thank you very much.